0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchil. The Federal Department of Justice says there are more than 3,000 treatment courts in the U.S. These are special dockets that can focus on specific criminal defendants in adult and juvenile courts, including those who have drug dependency issues. These courts are especially relevant today with opioid addiction, a problem nationwide. Now, coming up, we're going to learn about a drug court in Pennsylvania and find out whether Connecticut has a similar program. Now, if you've uh, gone through a drug intervention program here in Connecticut, we want to hear from you, too. I'm going to give out the number and our conversation again will be later about drug courts, that number 860- 860-275-7266. Now, first, we're going to talk about a recent story uh, by, in C HIT.org. That's the Connecticut Health and Investigative Team, which highlights disparities faced by state residents with sickle cell disease. Do you or a family member have sickle cell? What kind of medical care have you or they experienced? You can join the conversation, 860 275 You can email where we live at WNPR.org. You can find us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Our guests today are going to be uh, joining us in just a minute. We're actually having a, some technical difficulty, but Peggy McCarthy is a reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, also known as C. hit She's going to join us, as well as Deborah Oliver, a volunteer outreach educator for Sickle Cell Disease Association of America in Southern Connecticut. She lives with sickle cell disease. Both are going to join us in just a few minutes. But again, if you know someone who has sickle cell disease or if it's a family member, we we want to hear from you. That number, 860 um, 275 Right now, I'm going to go to Peggy McCarthy. Are you there, Peggy? Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Happy Monday to you, Thank Peggy. Thank you. Um, you. You've done a really excellent story here for C-HIT, uh, looking at sickle cell disease, or SCD. What exactly is sickle cell? Many of us have heard about it, but we may not know
2: exactly what it does to the human body. Yeah, it is a genetic blood disorder, and patients experience excruciating pain, uh, life-threatening complications, and early death. And what happens is that blood cells are sticky and misshapen. And as they attempt to travel through patients' blood vessels, it causes intense pain and blood clots. And um, related issues include organ damage, breathing problems, and patients are also susceptible to stroke. And Almost half of people with sickle cell disease die in their 40s.
0: Now, why did you decide to focus on sickle cell disease, Peggy? Excuse me? Why did you decide to focus on this this story well, on sickle I cell? I
2: was assigned this story by my editor who mm-hmm. realized that there really hadn't been much done in Connecticut about it, and um, there were a few feature stories about some events things like that but nothing really about the disease and what it is and what it does and what it how it affects people
0: now federal data from the centers for disease control uh, they estimate 100,000 Americans are living with sickle cell disease do we know how many in Connecticut uh, have this disease
2: well the estimates are about 2,000 if you add up the number of patients that the four hospitals in Connecticut with programs have, it comes out to about a 1,000, and doctors estimate that there are another 1,000 in the state who aren't getting um, care at these centers. The state started testing at birth in 1990, so there are some numbers about how many children have been born with it since then, but there aren't numbers Uh, relating to children who have moved to the state from elsewhere, or people who were born before 1990. Then there's no national data registry, so everything is really an estimate. Hmm.
0: And this is a disease that affects more African
2: Americans and Hispanics in this country? That's correct. Um, One in 365 patients are African Americans, and one in 16,300 are Hispanic
0: now, in your story for C. Hit, uh, you also talk about how um, in Connecticut newborn babies are now tested for sickle cell disease, but that's not that wasn't always the case. Uh, tell us a little bit about that history and what prompted this uh, this testing to be more standard for newborns.
2: Well, I I think the state does test at birth for various um, illnesses, and this was added in 1990. And I I don't know uh, the history of how it was added. And so before 1990, they weren't testing for sickle cell disease? There was was not testing, no. So now what happens is if children at birth test positive, they are sent either to Connecticut Children's Hospital or Yale New Haven Children's Hospital.
0: This is where we live. Uh, today we're focusing in on sickle cell disease. Uh, Peggy McCarthy is a reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, also known as C-HIT. You can read their stories at c-hit.org. Now, one of uh, the women that uh, Peggy interviewed in her story is Deborah Oliver. She's a volunteer outreach educator for Sickle Cell Disease Association of America in southern Connecticut. She also lives with sickle cell disease. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I understand that um, you're a 41-year-old uh, resident here in Connecticut. It. When were you diagnosed?
3: Diagnosed at the age of four.
0: Mm. And tell us about uh, when you were four. What did did your parents, uh, your mother, um, tell you about well, the, how you were ill and how that diagnosis came to be? I had pneumonia, and they were wondering why I had pneumonia. And um,
3: they had me in the system, uh, the hospital system as Hispanic, and um, I'm African-American, and um, they never tested me for certain tests, and they were wondering what was going on. And so, I guess one of the doctors said, uh, when my mother found out that I was misrepresented in the hospital system, uh, she corrected that, and so then they said, well, let's test her for sickle cell, and that's how they discovered that I had sickle cell anemia, SS. Mm.
0: Uh, now, when you got that diagnosis as a child, uh, you know when your your parents heard about this diagnosis. Finally, uh, what was uh, what was known about the disease at the time? Was this something that uh, when people heard that their children had it, that it th- was a death sentence? Uh, no,
3: I think it was very little, and um, my family family didn't know much. Um, it's been a a learning journey. i um, still is a learning journey. There's not much research on it. It's getting better each day, and hopefully this will um, jumpstart it even a little bit more. Uh, However, they um, just were concerned. They prayed about it. They didn't worry about it, and um, I kind of had a regular childhood up until the age of about 18, Um, 18, 19. I needed a gallbladder surgery because – my gallbladder was inflamed and it was causing me to have sickle cell crisis uh, at least once a month and that's kind of when it really started really affecting my life. Mm.
0: Um, so tell us a little bit more about this chronic pain that you experience and uh, you mentioned that uh, sickle cell crisis so tell us a little bit more about that.
3: Okay so when I um, have pain the best way that I describe it is having like a Charlie horse. And so everybody can experience, has experienced a Charlie horse, especially in the wee hours of the morning. And when you, when I'm in pain and uh, the red blood cells are not traveling away my body as they should be because they're in a the sickle shape and they um, get clustered together in a certain area and can't move. And it, the flow of oxygen isn't all that great. And, Possibly my blood levels are low. I get this pain that's really sharp, and it's like a hundred, maybe thousand, worse than what a regular uh, a regular pain would be, and so a regular charley horse pain would be. And so it lo- it feels like a charley horse. It feels like something that you can't get rid of. You're walking around, you're rubbing the area that it's affected in, and it. Um, that's how I describe my pain. There are lots of other sickle cell patients who experience pain on a different level. Um, we're not all the same. I think lots of times we all get grouped the same, that we all have the same pain, but that's not the case. Some people have pain worse than others, but I've I've heard that the Charlie Hurst story. I've heard some people saying it feels like they're getting stabbed in the, in the leg or wherever their pain is associated over and over again, and it's and they need relief.
0: Mm. Uh, Peggy McCarthy uh, is again a reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. Uh, In your story, um, you write about uh, Deborah's um, experience, but you also uh, focus in on children with sickle cell, including a a little boy, a nine-year-old named Jeremy Brown. Uh, Tell us a little bit how the pain varies from patient to patient, and what a child uh, like Jeremy experiences.
2: Well, Jeremy had been very, very ill, And he was in the hospital at least once a month from the time he was six months old to six years. And he had excruciating um, pain episodes. And his father did ask a doctor, what is he feeling? The father was holding his son, and the doctor said, it is like he is being stabbed all over his body. Mm. So he started one of the only two medications that have been approved for sickle cell disease. And he started two years ago with hydroxyurea and it has been working for him and he has not had a hospitalization since. So the last time I spoke with his mother, she said he was still doing well. So the hope is that, um, that will continue to work for him. Um, it helps, to deter or relieve these horrendous pain episodes, he is having issues with growth, which is another side effect, and he does have to go to see a doctor about the growth issues. there There are other thing, complications that come with this, but he, um, this year he has been able to go to school without many absences and um, which has been helpful for his parents to his father once. Uh, lost a job because he had to be with Jeremy when he was hospitalized. So it it affects the whole family as well.
0: In your story, and you just mentioned one of these medications, but there are only two medications to help uh, treat uh, sickle cell disease, Peggy? That's
2: correct. Uh, Sickle cell disease was first identified in 1910, and it took until 1998 for the first one, hydrax- Hydraxuria, to be approved by the FDA, and, and for somebody to research a, a medicine that, that could be used speci- specifically for sickle cell disease, and the second was only approved last year in 2017 called Endari, so that isn't even in widespread use yet. Um, this compares with, I saw an NPR report actually about um, hemophilia, And that has 28 approved drugs with another 21 in development, and that affects mostly white males in about 200,000 people in the country. So there hasn't been much attention given to sickle cell disease in terms of research and pharmaceutical money for research, and so the patients have really been... um, hurting physically because the only thing that, you know, the main thing that helps them are opioids. Mm.
0: Uh, Deborah Oliver, uh, we're hearing again about just two uh, medications to treat sickle cell. Um, You were talking about how um, you deal with chronic pain uh, on a daily basis. What are your options to manage your pain? Well, I'm not a candidate for the
3: hydroxyurea. I I have discussed it with my private hematologist. And um, I'm not sick as often. I am sick once, as far as being hospitalized, once or twice a year. For the most part, uh, I manage my care with staying um, with a great dietary uh, plan that my doctor and I have come up with, as well as my internal medicine. I kind of work as a team with them, and I think that's important to work with the medical staff as a team and not just the medical staff just knowing everything Mm. and finding out what works best for you. Uh, When I am sick uh, they hospitalize me and they give me the oxygen and if I need a blood transfusion and um, they also prescribe, uh, give me narcotics when I'm in a hospital if needed and um, sometimes it is needed and sometimes if I'm in a hospital it's definitely needed but on a daily basis I don't take anything other than the daily prescription of folic acid and I try to stay hydrated Um, I know what works best for me and what doesn't I know what triggers my sickle cell crisis and I try to stay away from that avoid those kind of situations and I just try to leave live each day um, like it's the rest of my life or you know like treasure each day that I have
0: Deborah Oliver is a Connecticut resident living with sickle cell. Uh, Peggy McCarthy is also with us, reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team at CHIT.org. Uh, we're focusing on sickle cell disease uh, after uh, Peggy reported a recent story about the disparities that exist among people who have sickle cell disease. Are you one of them? We want to hear from you this hour, 860 275 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk with a medical do- doctor to learn more about the disease, and we'll take your calls too. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. Today, we're talking about sickle cell disease, a disease that predominantly affects African Americans and Hispanics in the US. My guests are Peggy McCarthy, a reporter for C-HIT, who recently wrote a piece about the disparities that exist for uh, sickle cell patients. Uh, Deborah Oliver is also with us. Uh, She lives with sickle cell disease, and she's a volunteer outreach educator for Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, uh, Southern Connecticut. And now joining our conversation is Dr. John Roberts, medical director of Yale New Haven adult sickle cell program. Dr. Roberts welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. Good to be with with you.
0: So we were learning a little bit about a sickle cell disease earlier. Uh, Tell us about uh, the the programs, the treatment programs that exist in the state.
4: Um, So there are uh, three programs in the state for adults uh, and two for children. For children there's a program at uh, Connecticut uh, Children's Medical Center of Connecticut, and there's a program at Yale New Haven Hospital in New Haven, and for adults, there is a program at uh, the University of Connecticut in Farmington and at Yale New New Haven Hospital in New Haven, and there's also a program at Bridgeport Hospital. Mm
0: We were talking earlier uh, that uh, many of us don't know much about sickle cell disease unless uh, we may have it or we know someone who does. When you look throughout your uh, medical career, how would you um, describe what trends you've seen on on raising awareness about sickle cell or even how uh, providers treat the disease?
4: Um, I think that Uh, There's been an increasing awareness of the disease since uh, breakthroughs in the treatment of children with sickle cell disease in the 1980s led to many more uh, people affected with the disease uh, surviving into uh, adulthood. Before that, many children uh, unfortunately died of infections, but uh, uh, by treating children now, uh, making sure that they have vaccinations for pneumococcal pneumonia and Uh, Children under the age of five take daily penicillin to prevent pneumococcal infections. It had a dramatic change on uh, infections in children and allowed children to live to adulthood. And so it became a condition that uh, uh, adult clinicians became more familiar with. In terms of changes in management, um, the uh, important change was the advent of uh, hydroxyurea in the late uh, 1990s. Uh, which has led to a dramatic change for many patients um, and also has allowed people to live longer. Um, we, ha- As was mentioned, we have a new drug that was available in December. It's still too early to tell what impact that drug will have. Um, and then I think that um, in general there's more willingness to use opioids appropriately to treat patients with sickle cell disease who are in pain now than there was in the uh 1880s or, I mean, 1980s, um, it was late 1980s that uh, uh, patient advocates started pointing out that because doctors were worried about opioid abuse and opioid addiction, they were very reluctant to treat patients with uh, opioids. And the, the big push there was in the cancer community. Um, but that led to uh, more willingness to use opioids in other patient populations and, of course, as is often the case now, we're struggling with uh, probably the pendulum swung too far, and so we need to carefully rein in the use of opioids in medicine. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want to, pre- to uh, prevent people with needs for opioids, like people living with sickle cell disease or people living with cancer. We, we want them to still be able to get them. So that's a dilemma.
0: Uh, deborah oliver what was what has been your experience when you have sought uh opioids to deal with your pain in the past
2: uh
3: I have different experiences. It depends on where I'm at and who's treating me uh for the most part um because of my private insurance I, i'm I'm seeing at the Yale health plan and um they know me. they have a relationship with me. there's a definitely a trust if I am transferred somewhere else into another hospital, and I don't know the doctors there are sometimes there is some kind of discrimination or um lack of trust both on my side and their side and um it's been difficult to get relief when there's a lack of trust in their in a relationship and so I always encourage um patients and I encourage the medical staff. Some, somebody has to let their guard down. Mm. We have a person who is in pain. I'm in pain. Uh, my goal is to not be in pain. And we have to come to some kind of compromise where I can trust you and you can trust me and you're not just looking at me on the out, outward appearance and you're not believing that I'm, I'm in pain um, or that you're too scared to give me the necessary requirement dose for me to be relieved for the for the pain. Um, And and unfortunately, sometimes, a lot of times, we as sickle cell patients face that. We face the fact that we're not believed or we are just coming to seek narcotics, which is kind of ridiculous because if that was the case, then we were coming in a controlled environment to get a controlled substance when we can go out in the street and we have seen that. And that's not the case. We are trying to put our trust and hoping that the person is taking that all seriously and really take, taking care of us and not discriminating against what we look like or what they perceive for us to be. Mm.
0: Uh, Dr. John Roberts, again, Medical Director of Yale New Haven's Adult Sickle Cell Program. Can you respond a little bit to what um, Deborah was sharing with us and you had... Uh, a- referenced this earlier about uh, because of uh, the nation's uh, problems with opioid uh, overprescription and addiction, um, you know, there has to be, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, uh, there's like a reckoning almost in like how we go about um, getting care for pain but at the same time making sure that it's being prescribed um, in the right way and where people who are in chronic pain they're able to, to get the pain relief that they're looking for without uh, feeling that um, they really have to, to justify um, to the provider that this is not something they're just getting because they may be
4: addicted. Yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, one of the keys is what Ms. Oliver referred to, which is that uh, she gets high quality care at the Yale Health System because um, they know her, and so there's a uh, uh, there's a history there. There's uh, documentation in the medical record of her illness and her response to illness and her response to opioids and how other people have managed her problem. And so when she goes there, um, even if she's seeing a provider, a, a clinician who she's not met previously, the medical record uh, creates a history that allows both Ms. Oliver and the provider to have confidence that they know what they're up to. Um, there are unfortunately uh of some individuals with sickle cell disease who are in Connecticut emergency departments all over the state on a regular basis. I was called once about a patient of mine who'd literally been in the emergency department more than once a day for the last eight months. Um, And uh, I was seeing the patient on a regular basis, but she wasn't sharing with me that she was addicted to opioids and that she was pursuing uh opioids on uh you know uh, on a daily basis now the number of individuals who are doing this is it's an extremely small number of a, a small fraction of the of the people living in the state with sickle cell disease however they are so persistent in their pursuit of drugs that uh they um they can color the perspective of uh, a, a clinician who works in an emergency department, and so it's a very difficult situation for both the patient and the provider and the clinician when a patient uh, a person with sickle cell disease who who is in pain, and who is seeking relief in a bona fide way, it's a very difficult position when they're in an unfamiliar emergency department with a clinician who's not familiar with the person and doesn't have access to medical records that give them reliable information about that person. Um, If we had a, a, for example, if one's a veteran, uh, now there aren't many veterans who have sickle cell disease because they're not likely to get into the into the uniformed services, but they're family members of veterans who are, who are covered. Nevertheless, if one's a veteran, one, wherever one goes in the United States, the medical record is available, and so uh, clinicians seeing a veteran for the first time can uh, learn whether past clinicians have uh, what their assessment was of the veteran's situation. And if, for example, a veteran has a chronic pain problem that requires higher doses of medications on occasion, the, the clinician can see that in the medical record. We don't have that for civilians in the United States. And so uh, clinicians who are working in emergency departments uh, can be in a difficult situation. Um, and uh, that's, that's a tragedy for the patients because then when the patients are seeking, uh, legitimately seeking uh, care, including pain relief, sometimes they can't access what they should be able to get.
0: Dr. John Roberts is Medical Director of Yale New Haven's Adult Sickle Cell Program. Uh, This is where we live. Today, we're focusing in on uh, sickle cell disease. Um, 100,000 Americans are estimated to have this disease, about 2,000 here in Connecticut. Also with us is Peggy McCarthy, reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. Now, Peggy, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation because in your story, you you talk about uh, the uh, ER care uh, that uh, many sickle cell patients are getting. Advocates say it's poor ER care that's caused deaths due to a lack of knowledge about sickle cell disease. I understand in your reporting uh, you also found uh, there were um, uh, programs uh, that were created to help uh, ERs around the state deal with sickle cell patients. Tell me a little bit about that and if th- that kind of plan has been adopted by uh, ER departments so that there's uh, better care for sickle cell patients.
2: Well, um Two doctors affiliated with two of the programs, Dr. Berry and Amiriem from UConn, and Dr. William Zemsky from Connecticut Children's, came up with a protocol for emergency rooms to use for sickle cell patients. But none of the Connecticut emergency rooms have adopted it, and, and this I'm talking about the hospitals that do not have programs for. Um, Sickle cell disease, so it's everything except Yale, mm. Bridgepoint, Connecticut Children's, and Yukon. Um, so people go in and um, they, as, as Dr. Roberts said, the majority are looking for relief from their excruciating pain, and opioids provide that relief. But um, as an advocate from the um, Hartford, Organization for Sickle Cell Disease, uh, Citizens for Quality Sickle Cell Care, Virginia uh, Pertilar said um, people are accused of going to emergency rooms to get high, not to relieve pain. And they're mistreated, maltreated, and they're enduring harmful long waits. Um, The National Institutes of Health in 2014 came up with a protocol that sickle cell patients should be given medication within an hour of arriving at the emergency room, and there are reports that that does not occur. So it it really, you know, there are people who say that deaths have happened because of poor care and inadequate care, and um, a lot of doctors are totally unfamiliar with sickle cell disease, medical schools don't spend much time on it at all. And I did see a study that said that many doctors are frankly uncomfortable in um, treating sickle cell disease because they're just unfamiliar with it.
0: Dr. Roberts, uh, can you respond to what uh, Peggy was telling us?
4: It's, uh, it's, it's a complicated issue. Um, most visits are around the issue of pain, and therefore, most visits, unless, as we discussed earlier, the, the uh, patient is in a health facility that knows the patient well and has well documented in the medical record what the patient's issues are, uh, whenever any kind of patient is an uh, unfamiliar patient is in an emergency department uh, with pain. Um, there's always issues about appropriate or inappropriate use of opioids. Uh, pain, obviously, we want to treat effectively, uh, and often it requires high dose of opioids for people with sickle cell disease. And, uh, for example, at, at Yale New Haven Hospital, for the patients we know, we have individualized care plans that give the emergency room doctors advice about how to deal with uh, pain. And sometimes these care plans recommend that they start with a very high dose of opioids because our experience is that lower dose of opioids will not be effective, but of course, if one of our patients is visiting a relative in another part of the state and that emergency room physician doesn't have access to our medical record, then um, uh, they're in a difficult situation. Uh, it's rare that patients present with life threatening problems, but when they do, uh, they do need to be addressed very quickly. Uh, or there is a risk of death. Uh, it's not pain per se that causes death in sickle cell disease. It's typically lung problems or heart problems. Um, and uh, it's, uh, by the nature of the disease, it's, a, it's an uncommon disease. Um, the average emergency department physician is not going to be familiar with uh, patients with that problem. So the job of ED physicians is to be familiar with all sorts of things, including uncommon things. Uh, and one would hope that uh, patients would always get excellent care. Um, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I I don't have data about what happens in uh, emergency departments other than UConn and uh Yale New Haven Hospital to, real, to really help with that.
0: Uh, do a lot of people in our state go untreated, Dr. Roberts, because there are only four facilities that, have, that specialize in treating sickle cell disease, and how do we improve the access to that?
4: Yeah, you know, so that's a, a good concern. I think many adults uh, go without treatment. Uh, partly that's sort of a normal transition when uh, children uh, with chronic illnesses become adults from the medical uh perspective these are people that have a chronic condition and they should you know be appropriate and see doctors on a regular basis but as young adults transition from their pediatricians to their uh internists they often just sort of disappear because they don't want to think every morning when they wake up you know they're they're struggling with self identity establishing themselves in the world establishing career path, establishing personal relationships, they don't want to think of themselves as a person with a chronic illness that could shorten their life or lead to disability. And so across a number of diseases, it's common for children to disappear, to fail to make the transition from pediatric to adult care. However, that's complicated in a a major way in sickle cell disease because it is a disease of people of African ancestry in the United States. And as we know, African-Americans have been discriminated against for uh, centuries in this country and and continue to be discriminated against. And so as as individuals and as families, they have less wealth and less income than uh, mainstream Americans. over half the adults with sickle cell disease in Connecticut probably are on Medicaid as their uh, only health insurance, and uh, providers are less than enthusiastic about taking care of patients for, with Medicaid because, uh, among other things, it covers less than the cost of caring for the patients. So one has to have a sense of mission in order to deal with to take care of people who are on Medicaid. So there are many communities in connecticut where there are people living with sickle cell disease but there are not providers who are really focused and committed to taking care of people who have serious problems related to sickle cell disease and so both patients don't present as frequently as they should and also the medical you know you see billboards on ninety five if you have heart attack or stroke come to our center you don't see any billboards about sickle cell disease and that's that's not a, a a mistake Um, the medical system, for a variety of reasons, is not really welcoming to people with this problem.
0: This is where we live. Today, we're focusing in on sickle cell disease. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Reggie's calling from Greenwich. Reggie, go ahead.
1: Yes, hi, thank you. Um, um, The doctor actually, uh, uh, thanks for taking my call, Uh, the doctor actually began to touch on this uh, issue of income, and income disparities and lack of investment in African-Americans in terms of health care. It is a fact that a bone marrow transplant has a 90% cure rate for sickle cell. I have a niece who, was, who went through the bone marrow transplant. Her parents were comfortable enough to be able to pay for it, and she is now cured of sickle cell. I'm surprised that this is not even being discussed in this program, and I'm sure it's the price tag of the 200 to 300000 but couldn't we raise that and at least save one person and then begin to save others instead of all of these other things that we're talking about here? And I'll take uh, my answer offline.
0: So Reggie's talking about the cost of uh, this uh, treatment, but I'm curious, Dr. Roberts, uh, in terms of uh, these kinds of, of uh, bone marrow transplants, um, how successful are they and what when can someone with sickle cell disease actually get this
4: treatment? Yeah. So I'm very glad that Reggie brought this up. I, I agree with him. It's an omission that we didn't discuss it earlier. It is a potentially curative therapy for sickle cell disease. Um, the first problem is, that, and it is, an, it is an expensive therapy, but it will be covered by Medicaid in Connecticut. And so I don't think... The finances are the barrier to uh, people getting this treatment, at least for for Medicaid patients. Now, for the for the working poor who don't have Medicaid, yes, it would be a tremendous barrier. The the other issue with um, uh, bone marrow transplant is that the results are very good when one has a perfect match. Uh, but a perfect match would be uh, a, bro- a full brother or sister, and it would be, and, and because of genetics, only one out of four full brothers or sisters uh, is going to turn out to be a perfect match. So, in the United States, for every person with sickle cell disease, only about one out of five of those people has a perfect match available a fully matched brother or sister to do a bone marrow transplant. So those people certainly should consider this option, but for the four out of five people who do not have a a perfect match, bone marrow transplants can be available, but there's still a research uh, intervention, and the, the reason for that is that there's still, unfortunately, deaths related to doing bone marrow transplants in people who are not a perfect match. Now, the death rate should be zero in people who are a perfect match in a in a in an ideal world uh it should be a safe procedure um but as as reggie said there's a 90 percent cure rate if one is treating so most commonly we treat cancers with bone marrow transplant like leukemias and those are likely to lead to death in a matter of weeks or months in people who otherwise undergo a transplant. For sickle cell disease, it's a very difficult decision for patients and their parents because the best time to transplant people is when they're young, like 10 years or younger, Um, but sickle cell disease is not immediately fatal. And so a 10-year-old has a prospect of living to their 40s or early 50s in the United States If the death rate really is ten percent, and I think it's actually much less than that for people with a perfect match, I think it's like that for people without a perfect match. If the death rate is is, but if it's say it's a five percent death rate, it's scary to think about a one in twenty chance of dying now of a medical procedure so that one will be able to live into one's sixties, seventies or eighties. That's an unusual trade off for people to face. And so people have a hard time making that choice.
0: Uh, before we have to end the segment, I wanted to go back to Deborah Oliver, who was living with sickle cell disease. You know, we focused a lot of the conversation on uh, the lack of uh, medications to treat uh, sickle cell disease, and the fact that many patients have to uh, rely on opioids because of the chronic pain. But what about medical marijuana, Deborah? Is that something that um, that has gotten enough awareness, and is that something that, um, that should be more more attention should be raised and to help uh, patients uh, with the pain?
3: Well, I think that it has been awareness among the sickle cell community as far as the patients um, who I communicate with on social media or the individuals that I communicate on social media. As far as the medical staff, um, a lot of them are not as keen to prescribe that. There's, again, there's a trust issue and uh, it's, it's, hard to trust me when I don't look like you and when you think I'm less than you and so if you are not taking your oath seriously and you're not doing it for the love of trying to treat people then of course you're going to give that person a hard time and that, that happens all the time whether whatever the case may be in dealing with our pain whether it's opiate or marijuana and, and I feel like If marijuana works for that individual and they discuss it with their doctor, I think that it's an option that they should try. I I think that anything that a patient feels like they are comfortable in trying, then the doctor should be um, upfront and honest about what the risks are and discuss it and then say to them, okay, let's try it, let's be comfortable with it And, and, and not push things onto them that they're not comfortable with, mm. um, other medications or such as hydroxyurea. I think that it should be a team effort, and lots of times it's not a team effort. And when you are in a situation where you're being treated by somebody who doesn't know you, I think that, again, you have to take your oath seriously, and you treat that person like they're a loved one or how you would want to be treated. And uh, it's lack of education on a medical arena, end of it. And I think they need sensitivity treatment, just like the people from Starbucks. Um, if you're going to get trained, you need to be trained. You need to know what sickle cell is. There are lots of times where I hear stories of sickle cell friends who say that I have doctors and nurses coming into my room and asking me how long have I had sickle cell, which is absolutely ridiculous because if everybody has access to Google, why don't you Google it if you're not too, quite too sure what sickle cell mm-hmm. is or what my diagnosis is? It only takes a few minutes out to look and, and look up something on the internet and know that it's hereditary and that you're born with it, and not come in with a question that's ridiculous to say how long have you had it. So I think a lack of training is definitely necessary. So I, again, with your question about opiates, I'm definitely for it. If it works for the person, then why not? Why not? Why not that be uh, on the list of? what we can do to help you ease your pain so that you are not on, on, uh, any drugs, whether it's hydroxyurea or an or a opiate.
0: Deborah, we're going to have to leave it there. Deborah Oliver, thank you for joining us today. Also, Peggy McCarthy, reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, and Dr. John Roberts, medical director of Yale New Haven's adult sickle cell program. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up, we know opioid addiction is a problem nationwide. Some states have added drug courts to help criminal defendants with substance abuse issues. Incarceration isn't the only answer. We're going to learn more about this treatment option uh, for uh, people again uh, in Connecticut and nationwide right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall The Federal Department of Justice says there are more than 3,000 treatment courts nationwide. We wanted to know more about what that means exactly. And we heard about an interesting, uh, pro- interesting programs in uh, uh, Pennsylvania counties. Joining us by the- on the phone is uh, Rich Lord, who's a reporter for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Rich, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Lucy. Great to be
0: here. I understand that you profiled some of these, uh, these so-called drug courts. What does that mean exactly, and how uh, do they uh, offer up alternatives to incarceration?
1: What's different about drug courts is that they're not adversarial like your typical criminal proceeding. Uh, there's a team approach in which uh, all of the parties, including the prosecutor and the defense attorney, are really supposed to be working toward the recovery of the defendant. And typically, the defendant starts out on some form of either pretrial release or some form of probation. Uh, They go before the judge, though, every week at the beginning. And in between uh, appearances with the judge, they receive multiple drug tests and they go to recovery treatment and meetings. Uh, A team of probation officers and uh, social workers tries to help them to, first of all, stay off drugs and in treatment, get decent housing you know, find a job, deal with family problems that have built up, all that stuff. And um, usually you move up through different phases. And uh, as you move up, as you get these various parts of your life together, your supervision loosens up a little bit. You don't have to come to court as often. And if you mess up, you um, de-phase, as they call it, or move down a step, meaning that things uh, kind of tighten up for you a bit. Uh, If you keep messing up to the point where it's clear that you're not really interested in recovery but maybe you're just trying to avoid prison, then they steer you back into the regular court system and you might get jail or prison. Mm.
0: Now, when we're talking about um, options uh, to get people support, uh, again, these are um, nonviolent uh, criminal defendants uh, in many of these programs, um, how do they go about uh, finding the community providers? Uh, are they providers that um, advocate abstinence, or is there medication-assisted treatment? Um, is that something that's growing in terms of, of being receptive to so that, might, like use Suboxone, uh, that might help people?
1: That's definitely the great divide in the drug courts right now. Uh, there are roughly 1,500 pure drug courts and another roughly 2,000 either veterans courts or juvenile drug courts or kind of family or drunk driving courts in the country. And they're split roughly half uh, between the abstinence-only camp and kind of the medication-assisted treatment camp with probably a little more than half in the medical, medication-assisted treatment camp right now. And kind of like society as a whole, um, they're trying to figure out what to do uh, with this problem. Um, some of the drug courts think that the kind of narcotics anonymous, alcoholics anonymous model where, you know, you, you uh, achieve uh, a state of being, quote, clean or substance free is the way to go. But um, others are saying, hey, uh, if methadone or buprenorphine, that's the um, in- ingredient in suboxone, if, if those work for you, then, you know, we'll, we'll work with that. So just like you're seeing in the whole recovery community, a big debate about that, you're seeing that unfold in drug courts, even in my region and, and definitely nationally.
0: Rich Lord is a reporter for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette as we learn about uh, more and more treatment courts uh, becoming an option uh, for nonviolent criminal defendants uh, nationwide. We were curious what was going on here in Connecticut. Joining us now is Judge Robert Devlin, Jr., presiding criminal judge for the Fairfield Judicial District. Judge Devlin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good morning. We just have a couple of minutes, but we're curious um, if Connecticut has uh, technically these drug courts, and what programs uh, do you offer nonviolent defendants?
5: Um, Connecticut had drug courts, um, but we've sort of pivoted to a a different model. Um, We're trying to reach as many people as we can to help them with their uh, addiction problems. Um, So we have drug intervention courts where we sort of collect drug cases uh, on one docket, and uh, they are... Uh, We try to route people to services through that. We have a very interesting pilot program, our Treatment Pathways Program here in Bridgeport, that um, on the day the person is arrested, we see if they might qualify for treatment, if they're interested in getting treatment. And we have piloted that now for about two years. We've had about 300 people go through the program, and um, with some real prospects and real good success. We're trying to expand that now in July to uh, other um, New London and, and uh, Waterbury and, and Torrington. So um, yeah, we, we see the drug court as, as one model, but we, we're trying to reach more people, more efficiently, and we think we were able to do that with these uh, other programs. Uh,
0: there have been issues with uh, money being taken away from the judicial branch over the years. So yeah. this is a alternative, uh, Judge Devlin, to, to help uh, people with substance abuse issues if you can't have a uh, just one drug court allocated to, to, to do this for these people?
5: Yeah, I mean, you take a case, you know, a drug court might have 30 or 40 people in the drug court. There might be, you know, a, a 1500 active cases pending in that court. Um, now many of them are not suitable for drug court, but the idea is, you know, to focus all your resources on a very narrow set of people tends to diminish what you can do for others. So we're trying to do the most we can for the most people.
0: And we were hearing from uh the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reporter Rich Lord about um, depending on the type of treatment court and uh the state, uh, not all programs embrace medication assisted treatment versus uh abstinence. Uh what's the co- Connecticut's take on that?
5: Well, I can speak about our treatment pathways program because we've actually looked at that carefully. And um, of the people that have successfully completed the program, um, those that took the medicine did better. I mean, you compare the people that just went through an abstinence program versus those that went through a medically-assisted program, um, the success rate was 60% greater uh, for people who um, were on methadone or suboxone or one of these other um, you know, uh, medicines that, that are used. I realize there's, there's criticism of that, but, you know, quite frankly, Connecticut is, uh, we're trying to fight this opioid crisis. I mean, we're 12th in the nation in terms of per capita deaths uh, from uh, opioid uh, overdose. So um, if this medicine works, uh, personally, I'm all for it. We'll
0: have to leave it there, but it shows uh, that um, from what Judge Devlin was uh, telling us that the evidence shows that it is working, these treatment courts, and there are programs here in Connecticut uh, that offer that alternative to criminal defendants. We want to thank Judge Robert Devlin Jr. again. Also, Rich Lord, who's a reporter for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, will tweet out some links at where we live uh, to learn more about different treatment courts around the country. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Kion Wolf and Carmen Baskoff. Also, Genometry. Judah. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchal. Thanks for listening.